built my passion over time, which enables me to become a cockroach in those times of need. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can build passion towards something as well. But again, make it, make it passionate about solving a problem. Don't make it passionate about an idea or a solution like we just talked about. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Gray, and this is another episode of the Gray App Podcast. I was thinking right now that maybe I should uh, come up with a new intro because any time that I think of doing it differently, I end up saying the same thing all the time. But anyway, today uh, we have another exciting guest on the podcast. Uh, this is one of those episodes that a lot of entrepreneurs out there are going to enjoy because it's all about the startup journey, you know, building your company. Uh, and going through uh, funding rounds and making things happen. So our guest today is Samer Sab. He's the co-founder and CMO of Walla platform. Uh, and these guys are doing incredible work in the fintech space, especially in Africa, which is exciting, but they're best in, uh, he is best in, in, in Cape Town. So actually I had a chance to go to, to their offices and had the podcast there, which was amazing. So Walla is a zero fee money app on a mission to support you on your path to financial freedom. They believe that financial systems in this world are broken due to high fees, poor experiences and inaccessibility. Especially if you're not in a third world country, these kind of things are a little bit uh, complicated to understand. But for, from someone who live here and, you know, I've tra- traveled a bit in Africa, it's, you know, the, the, the financial system, is, it's, it's, it's broken. Um, it's very difficult for people to trade. I mean, looking at, at all the technology that we have, uh, I find it very, very annoying to see that just basic things don't work. You know, our remittances are a big thing, but then the fees are high. So, you know, it's exciting to see that these guys are actually um, solving this. So, I don't want to spend too much time on the intro. I'll let you enjoy this podcast, but I hope you pick up a lot uh, just as I learned from this. Uh, especially, I think this kind of give you an overview of how, what's happening in the fintech space and what other people are doing in Africa and some challenges that most startups uh, go through and how uh, Summer has managed to go through those because this is not really his first uh, start, startup. So as an entrepreneur out there, if you're listening to this uh, or an aspiring inter- uh, aspiring entrepreneur, I need coffee, I think. Um, I think you will learn a lot from this. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you want to check out Walla, go to getwalla.com. It's G-E-T-W-A-L-A.com and have a look at what these guys are building. Uh, which is already operating in Uganda, for example. Enjoy. No, your name. Samer. Samer. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's like so American. Like because, Hammer. Right, right, right. Because it looks... Like, what, what is... Is that an... It's a Lebanese name. A Lebanese name. Okay, so I thought so. I thought along those lines, but like I was like... So Samir is a different name. Samer is my actual name. Right. Yeah. Okay, but it's the same name, just pronounced differently? No, it's a different name. It's spelled differently in Arabic. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's a different name. 
but so Samar is the American version, I suppose. No, Samar is the actual. It's the Lebanese, the American version. Yeah, okay. it's the actual. It's the actual pronunciation. Right. So, uh, what were you doing before this? Uh, before this, I had another startup um, mm-hmm. that I co-founded and ran for about four years. It was in the tech and design space, and what we built was a online community of furniture designers um, whose goal was to bring innovation to. Um, like large furniture manufacturers. So bring, in, bring innovation to the furniture market um, through mm-hmm. a crowdsourced design process. Um, so we would work with large furniture manufacturers like Herman Miller, who would put out design briefs to our community, and then the community would go out and um, they would collaborate and compete to create uh, innovative new designs. Um, we, did a, we did a number of these projects. We created some, some great work, but we were unable to, to really uh, sustain and continue to grow. Um, at, a, at a pace that enabled this to, to really take off. And so we, we shut down the company after about four years. So what does it mean when, when you shut down the, the company? When you close, it means the investors lose their money and you... Yeah, so in, in, that, in, in that case, we did have uh, investors that lost the money. Okay. Yeah. And so just to put, to put it out there, so venture capital, if, you, if, you, if the company doesn't do well, it fails, you lose money. So you had no personal debts to it that you had to pay back? In that case, um, I had no personal debts to pay back to anyone, mm-hmm. correct. But uh, I, at the same time, invested um, you know, the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. of my own time and money and opportunity cost into that business. So, um, I, you know, especially early on, taking no salary and then taking very little to no salary um, for for you know several years, uh, compared to you know salaries I could be uh, taking in a in a job on the open market, amounted to you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, uh, I had a significant amount of skin in the game. In in um, working or trying to build this company. Um, and then investors uh, put money in as well to also have skin in the game and then take a, take a bet on us being able to succeed and achieve. Right, and before that, what, what were you doing? Prior to that, I was a management consultant. Uh, I did that for about four years at a firm called ZS Associates based out of Chicago, Illinois in the States. Um, uh, our specific focus was on helping um, revenue side of the organization improve their operations and, and find opportunities to become more efficient and um, just streamline general processes, mostly in, in, in large sales organizations. So we had a lot of uh, uh, pharmaceutical clients, healthcare, um, but, but not just there as well. Mm-hmm. For at what age did you started working, man? You, you don't seem that old to me, but you have four years of work, eight years of work already behind you. Yeah, um, that's it's. I think I've been I've been working for about ten years. I graduated college um, with a bachelor's and master's in industrial engineering um, in two thousand eight and began working. Actually. Um, Coincidentally, my first day of, of working a full-time employment was the day Lehman Brothers went under. I remember that very, very clearly because just going up to that week, you know, was, everything was, was really interesting in the market and I was paying attention. 
and it was the news of the day at, at new employee orientation. And I, so it's, it's very vivid. I can always remember that day, yeah. even, even to the 10 years later. And now you, I'm still trying to piece together what then, I was trying, when I was asking about your past, I was trying to piece together why you would end up uh, in Africa trying to be the solution for, you know, for Uganda. Yeah, that's a it's a it's a it's a good question. Um, so my my path and, and my passions have always been about sort of solving problems. Um, that that's what attracted me to consulting initially was the opportunity to solve different problems, make it like produce impacts in in organizations, um, have a bunch of different experiences and, and different um, opportunities to come in to a, a wide range of situations and quickly diagnose and quickly diagnose issues and then find possible solutions um, and that is very similar to what entrepreneurship is and in a very localized um, level so after my last company um, unbranded designs I was I was looking for opportunities and where to go next because I, I still had a, a, a significant desire to um, apply my skills but I wanted to find real problems to solve um, and I, I didn't want to just start a company for the sake of starting a company. I wanted to find something that was a, a real issue that impacts a large number of people and try and help them in what it can be a, a simple, um, elegant solution. Uh, it, was, it was actually a few years before that where I met my co-founder. Um, we were both working at a co-working space in Chicago called 1871. Um, I was working on my startup. She was working on her startup at the time, uh, and we became we became friends out of that. Uh, and she was already sort of exploring this opportunity. She was the one that had um, that initial expertise and had been working in in the region, in Africa, I should say, in, in Uganda specifically, um, for some time. And it was the progress that she was making early on that that really started to open up my eyes to not just the opportunity, but the, the problem that people face and the scale of the problem. And it excited me because not only is this a major problem that requires solving, but there, there are simple approaches that can be taken to actually address these problems and drive wide-scale change. And so I immediately became attracted to it. And just so I started helping out and started to get my, my feet wet and then became incredibly passionate about it as I started to further understand the people that we were, we were trying to uh, solve for, um, to understand the market, understand how incompetent or, um, or even um, predatory right. the others in the space are. Um, made me extremely passionate about trying to solve this problem. And it, it, it became something that was worth moving halfway across the world for. Okay, that was enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's... Having a passion to solve the problem is a different story, but, like, if you have to move to a different continent for it, you know, and for a startup, obviously, nothing is certain. Yeah. At what stage was it, like... What was your mind frame like? Did you, did you thought you were just going to come here for a few months maybe and go back? Or you really said, 
have you been here before uh, prior to that? Yeah, so that, that is a good question. Um, so we did not just get up and move. We actually had a, a few steps in the process that, that brought us here. And also, um, for me, we had increase, increasing points of validation for us um, that indicated that what we were doing was correct. So, but, so from the start, um, our company actually began out of uh, Trisha's work um, Trisha is my co-founder. Her work with uh, subsistence female farmers and um, providing universal basic income to help them escape extreme poverty. The the progression from that though was um, identifying that these these women who actually had access to a a mobile financial service called Mobile Money and who would receive their this you know a, a year's worth of income into a mobile wallet would immediately choose to opt out of that mobile wallet by cashing out and then operating or just keeping all their money you know in in cash in a lockbox under their mattress in their hut um so this this cash issue was was mind-boggling and began the 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 journey of understanding what this issue was And, and we began to engage not only with these women but with um people in in urban areas um, the middle class, the young, people who are actually already online and, and you know, more technical, more educated, and, and started to understand, you know, do people have bank accounts? Do they have, um, or do they save? Do they, do they keep their money in mobile wallets? What is, what is the actual behavior? And we engage with these people digitally. We engage with them via Facebook Messenger, Skype, WhatsApp, um, and it began to, to start growing. Right. We had this massive influx of people that began to ask us questions. But th- was that after the product, when it was launched already? We had no products. We were just talking to people. We were right. just trying to get information, trying, just trying to understand behaviors. So how did you do that? Were you, did you guys go down there, or you had like a research team? This started when Trisha was on the ground in Uganda, and we also had um, uh, uh, a team member that was in Uganda, and he wasn't even a, a team member at that point. He was just someone who was was helping us. Um, but these conversations started to explode, and it became too much to to even um, manage as as one or two individuals. And so we aggregated all these conversations into first a Facebook group, and this Facebook group was initially supposed to be. Uh, just an area where people could come and ask questions and others could, could view or comment or provide their own responses responses to. Well, that Facebook group became 100,000 people in a month. Oh. And, and it, it's, it grew eventually to about 400,000 people. And this was incredible because all we were doing was, was talking about um, financial behavior, savings behavior, budgeting, um, Taking loans, using um, finance, using bank accounts, you know, gathering data on, you know, why do people behave in specific ways, or why don't they? And this was the first major indicator that we were onto something. We still had no idea what we were building in terms of a product, but we knew that we had struck a nerve. Um, and it was actually at that time when we uh, got into a TechStars program in London. Um, so this was the, the Barclays Accelerator powered by Techstars. Yeah, we were, we were building a product at that time, but we, it was not the current product. Well, our, our belief at that point was that we needed to provide um, financial guidance. And so we needed to build a, a personal financial management tool for the cash-based economy. 
So the I think the common one that South Africans know is 22.7. In the, and in the U.S., there's mint.com. Um, and there's a number of other ones. And the advantage that those those applications have is that they can tap into your bank accounts. They can get your credit card data, and then they can aggregate all that stuff. That doesn't really work for a customer that doesn't use his bank account. So we were trying to build a product that allowed the cash consumer to, to better understand their um, that they're spending behavior and, and create budgets. Um, so that was the first sort of indicator that we were doing something and doing something interesting. The first two indicators. So the first, obviously, the community, and second, that um, we were in this Techstars program. And it was during that Techstars program that we, we continued to refine our, our, uh, our work. So we, we were doing some work with... Um, with with Barclays and um, the the local Barclays Africa teams or the APSA team in South Africa, um, and we were we were essentially had a deal in place. Um, we were, the goal was to you know you start with this PFM, but you help people then get into bank accounts. You help them uh, access an account that makes sense for them that uh, is priced properly, and then you get them to actually remain engaged. And what what did you think of a revenue model from that point? Um, we were at that point expecting to act as a lead generator. Right. So we would find for people banks. for banks. Yeah. yeah. Um, but through that program, we we learned a number of things. Um, one, it was a great program. We met fantastic people. People who had, um, though based in London, had um, just great expertise throughout the African continent, so people who had worked not only in South Africa, East Africa, West Africa, everywhere. And so we were able to get a lot of value from that. And so we were really grateful. Um, but it was actually during that program that we had started to, to travel back and forth to uh, South Africa and, um, and start to get a feel for being on the ground here. Um, but the most important thing that we learned was that if we continue to rely on if we continue to push consumers to the same old bank accounts that already exist yeah. then nothing is going to change because these consumers generally know these accounts exist and these accounts these banks are the reason that we have an unbanked problem yes it's it's and so that's when we started to realize that unbanked is the wrong word and you're never going to solve the unbanked problem until we attack a much bigger underbanked problem. And the underbanked are the people that we define as people who actually have access to banking services, who could open an account, who actually may have an account. In, in South Africa, we actually, uh, we actually classify someone who is more, more likely to have three bank accounts than one as being underbanked because they don't use any of them. Yes, yeah. Um, and that's when we realized that we have to go this entire route. We need to figure out how we can provide financial services to consumers, have control over the entire experience, have control over the, the costs and the fees that the, the consumers pay, um, just everything. Because if we rely on, on the banks and, and whatever their products are, then we're going to, um, we're, we're never going to be able to, to actually meet the needs of the consumers as we see. And that's when we actually had a deal with uh, a different South African bank coming out of that. And shortly after, we decided to, we wanted to relocate to uh, Cape Town because um, we knew about the abundance of uh, fintech talent here. Yeah. And that became incredibly attractive to us as a place to, to, to build the company. Mm-hmm. 
That's very interesting, man. It's like usually when people think about startups and you know building companies of all founders, they it's usually sold as you know one day you just wake up with this brilliant idea and you start building it. But most startups actually that even end up being very successful is that you know they start with one idea and they just you know morph into so many different things until they find. Uh, what you know the, the best solution they could offer so right. so when you changed now what were what happened to you so you didn't build a product for your previous idea that you had so we we built a we built a pfm mm-hmm. but the where where we fell apart was that we didn't have the the end of the experience that we wanted to offer mm-hmm. so we wanted to get people into banking and then let them um, access their banking services through the application, but the what we immediately realized as we were building was that um, the banks on the back end were not going to uh, allow us to do that. So we went the entire route to build our own our own banking experience, right. which is the wall of financial. So app. now, for someone who has been listening to this, they have no idea what product you ended up building now. So how do you explain Dollar? I mean, Wallet, the, the platform. Yeah, so Walla is a financial uh, application. So we're a, we're a smartphone app built on Android, and it's a it's a platform that enables you to access all the financial products and services that you need. Um, with one caveat, we are built on the blockchain. So we are we are offering. Um, so we we take a decentralized approach to financial services, and we intend to be able to bring you all of the financial services you need, but in a decentralized manner, which enables you to hopefully get. Um, uh, access to more options and um, more control over your your finances as well. Right. So, and with that, did you had an idea of did this had anything to do with the rise of, well, of cryptocurrencies and use of blockchain technology? Absolutely, one hundred percent. We continued to when we got to South Africa. We continued to engage with with the banks, the ones that we had partnerships with, um, not just in South Africa but but across the the spectrum. And um, it continued to be the case that even in even though we were taking this new position where we were going to become the digital bank and have our own experience, have the customer relationship, um, banks were always going to be a a rigid, you know, in some cases inept you know, in some cases criminal, um, partner that would, would always hold us back. And for us, we had we'd long been keeping our eye and interest on the, the blockchain and crypto space. But for, for the longest time, our, our uh, approach had been to keep that in our product roadmap to enable remittances when we get to the point where we have... Um, uh, penetration in, in multiple markets to be able to offer that. It was it was probably early 2017 when we started to realize that there is a better fit for what we are doing with crypto than with banks. And the one of the biggest reasons is that with Walla, we are trying to deliver a consistent user experience to someone, whether they are in South Africa, Uganda, uh, Tanzania, Nigeria, wherever. We're trying to create one global experience the same way that you get with WhatsApp or, or Facebook. Right. And the only way to do that is with a currency that is borderless. Well, yeah. Right? And how do you, there's no way to achieve that with, um, 
and on a continent with with 54 different countries and 41 different different currencies and so it, it's actually embarrassing that it took us so long to realize that um that that was the the absolute right way to go um but you know we live and we learn so i mean with that kind of that the thing with that kind of concept of you know cryptocurrency uh, it's almost like a new money concept to a lot of people and now if you go to uganda i suppose that's even much more of a surprise like how, what was the initial reaction from the consumer perspective like how, how do they perceive it how long does it take for an average customer to understand what what it is and actually start using it it's a good question because i think that when people think cryptocurrencies you know our, our minds go to the crypto exchanges the crypto prices you know what you see on coin market cap and that is that i mean that's that's one view of the market, but that, that isn't really valuable to people that are using it. And so we haven't focused our, our users on, you know, what is the price? What is, what, how, how does this work? What does it do? Which, you know, we, we, def, we absolutely uh, prioritize education. But what matters is being able to demonstrate that the currency has value. And the way that it has value is by being transactable, by being able to use it to uh, obtain financial services. And that's what we have prioritized, is getting that activity from, from actual users. Because that demonstrates, um, that, that allows uh, trust to build, customer sentiment to, to come um, into the, the, the token in the market. And that builds behaviors that we're trying to build. So it's, I, I think the motivations are probably different versus um, other countries, other tokens, other currencies. Um, and we believe that over time, through incentives, through good user experience, through um, unique utility that comes with a digital token, mm-hmm. that customers will start to understand the, the real real interesting value that, for instance, you or I might understand is available in cryptocurrencies beyond just a normal transactional. Um. But uh, currently, how long is that taking, that, that process of education for a customer to understand? I mean, a customer can get immediate utility. Mm-hmm. And so, they, so the, the risk is, I think, lower. So, for instance, a customer can, can open an application, they can purchase DALA, the cryptocurrency, and then they can um, transact with it by either sending it to someone else or by redeeming it for a value-added service like airtime data or electricity. Um, that, that's a way in which they're getting actual utility immediately, and then it's, it's relatively low risk, so it's transactional. Um, that is, that's, a, that's what we focus on now, and... We use those. We use this approach to um, allow them to feel comfortable with that, and then to try and attract them to that that currency over time. And then the the longer term step of of building enough um, confidence and trust for a user that they put their entire savings in that takes longer. But at the same time, we don't want them to do that yet because that's a it's a big leap for for any sort of token and i I think you know bitcoin even right like people should be um hesitant about putting their life savings in in any cryptocurrency at the moment so we don't we want people to over time build to that and when when the actual dollar market has 
higher daily transaction volumes, that's when I think people will have more more and more confidence that we'll start to uh, translate into sales. Right. What's interesting to me is that you, you guys don't really focus on how everyone else approaches the cryptocurrency market, you know, with token and prices. You're like, you're very focused on the product, which is really great. But from for, for a lot of listeners here who are probably doing their own startups or trying to, the question I would ask you is how the hell do you get to make relationships with banks and institutions that you want or you need for your startup to work? Because that's very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, it's, it's hard and it takes a lot of time. We've wasted years with banks. Um, and what I will say is if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to be a hustler. Like you need to go out and get stuff. No one's going to give you anything. No one's going to give you an intro. You have to go out and make the connections. And then there are tools in which you can do it. LinkedIn is probably the, the most useful tool. People, people will respond to LinkedIn mails, especially yes. if you can, if you can um, write them in a way that interests someone. Um, but you need to be aggressive in your conversations and in your pursuit. Um, and, you know, the, the term, the, the word cockroach is, is thrown, out, thrown out a lot. What um, cockroach. Cockroach, right. And it essentially refers to someone, um, typically an entrepreneur, that, is, that just like will never die. That they'll, they'll always fight through all of the, the ups and downs um, that come with running an early stage company, and you, from I can tell you from experience, things will things will fall apart, things will look helpless, and it may seem that you're on your your last leg, um, but your ability to just be a cockroach and then hustle your way out um, can be the difference between going under and then know having a a successful company or a successful exit um no matter what you're going to run into like regardless like it, it, it's it's certain that you're going to run into some wall or some roadblock or something that is going to make everything that you've done seem worthless and if you can't spin your way out of that if you can't fight through that then you probably you may not want to be an entrepreneur it's it's not easy. It's not glamorous. Right. So, was what was that moment for you? Was it your last startup that you you felt like the the most bottom? I uh, no. Right. No, it's not my last startup where that was. Um, although with with within that, it's not something that happens. Um, at the end of a startup. It's especially if you're if you have those cockroach behaviors. Yeah. If if you do it well, it should happen. It may happen several times within the company that you're still working for, and you're hopefully have now escaped the the worst times and are are trajectoring uh, or on a, a upward trajectory. Um, I don't want to detail the ones that we've been through with Walla, but. I can tell you that we've had several of them, and um, 
we've we've fought through those we've we've stuck it out we've we've uh scratched and clawed our way out of what seemed like the the end so of seemingly our time. from an outside perspective i might think that usually or in most cases what really would put an seo or the entire startup under pressure is funding but is that true or is there other things that really you you have seen um over the years that actually even bother you that probably even funding isn't that big of a problem sometimes yeah um yeah funding is is probably the ceo's biggest worry at you know just just constantly right like where are we in our and how much capital we have but it's not just funding for funding's sake right. it's funding for for a purpose right so you go out and get funding to get you to a point to accomplish some goals hit some milestones where you can justify going out and getting more funding right so for instance if you take seed capital well you know, this is generalized seed capital um, let's say that you've created an MVP so the so the the goal for that seed capital is to create the full version of the product and then get to um, some some um, number of users that are generating um, some revenue and are demonstrating that this product is is working even though you're obviously nowhere close to ca- to, to profitable and um, you know there's still a, a bunch of uncertainty so I, I've, I've accomplished these goals in this in this uh, time period with this funding so now I want to go out and get um, the next round of funding that is going to be used to we'll say um, get the next big batch of users and uh, show that our, our our value per user is increasing and the product is good we've improved the product you know we're, we're doing these things and then you go out for the next round of funding now what that means though is that it's not again it's not funding for funding's sake it's we have raised funding I'm going to need to raise funding again soon or I need to start raising fund uh, funding again soon or right now um, but we don't have a product or we don't have a partner that we desperately depend on or we don't have any users so no one's going to give me any funding if i need those three things and i don't have any of them or or i have two of those three things and one is is just looking really bad but you you have still raised a couple of round rounds of funding you know but but what what do you think people give you money um, I think it's because, well, people give us money at different points, mm-hmm. right? So you, no one just gives you money in a, in a vacuum. They give you money at the state of your company. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they gave us money early on, it may have been, at the, at the earliest point, it could have been just because in faith in the team and you know, general interest in the problem. And then... The, the next time someone gave us money, it may have been um, because they had seen we had made, we had, we had, had really found a way to get distribution to work because we built these, these, this massive community online. Um, and then later it was probably, you know, business model mm-hmm. and opportunity. And, and, then, and then now it's product users and and a whole whole combination of things and so you see over time these things change you know maybe one or two rounds from now it'll be not only product and users but 
revenue and you yeah. know the path to profitability or um, so these things change over time the reasons you get money changes over but I'm, I'm sure you built the team before you managed to even raise the first round of funding or your seed capital we had we weren't able so the team grows over time so we didn't have a full team we had a couple team members so we had two co-founders okay. um, were you developers themselves? No, we were non we were, we were non technical um, co founders. Um, so at that time, it was people putting money in, just betting on the entrepreneurs. Okay, wow. Yeah. What What do you think was that? I mean, why did someone give you money? Um, I think it's it's I think you demonstrate passion. You demonstrate. Um, you demonstrate, uh, I would say, a competence, um, a an ability to think through and diagnose and 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 have a vision for what you're trying to get to. So really that's all you have at that point. You have your vision. Yeah. That's because, and I think that especially at that early stage, people are just betting on that founder and their ability to achieve a vision or work through work through that vision over time to figure out how to make this work i think well, it's, i think it's probably a 99 percent investment in that in an expectation that that founder can do something how do you think vc spot that or if you had someone had to come to you asking for like as little as ten thousand uh, dollars what would how would you see those things within someone yourself I think at that stage you're typically going after angel investors. Um, typically, uh, a VC won't come in that early with money. Um, it depends on the VC. I mean, there are, there are seed stage VCs, but I would I would venture to guess that um, even at seed stage, VCs expect product and then users and then even maybe some revenue. Yeah. Um, uh, but our first stages and stages that I'm describing. Are, are typically one-on-one -on -one with angel investors, so potentially high net worth individuals or um, you know, people that just make a lot of <clears throat> personal investments in startups. Like, should those, would you recommend those people know you personally? Like you go to people that actually know you? I mean, you? if you can, yes. Um, but again, this is part of the hustle. So oh. you have to go out and find these people. And in, in going out and sharing your vision with people, and, and again, this is this is actually this such as a point that is probably worth um, laying out there. If you're talking to someone about your startup idea, do not have them sign an NDA because your idea is worthless. Um, right. I don't care how good of an idea it is, if you don't start actually building and executing on it, there's there's no value behind it. Um, but anyway, uh, so you need to get out there and you need to talk to people about what you what you want to build. You need to, to find, um, you need to get into the networks and, and find people that can introduce you to um, angel investors that might be interested in in what you're working on and who you are. Um, perhaps someone will intro you to an angel because they like the space, they like the potential, they, or they might like the space, they might like the, your vision, but when you meet with that person, they're only going to decide to invest in you if they really like you. And part of that, an extension of that is your vision, but it really is an evaluation on you as the entrepreneur. Right. And for you, where do you think 
this is going to go well. Do you think of selling one day or this is your baby that you want to ride for a couple of years? Um, so the answer to, to that is yes. There will be some sort of, of sale, um, although you know we have investors and so we will want some liquidity event to be able to uh, allow them to um, see the return on their value sure. um, on their investment. Um, but regardless, even if there was some sort of sale that doesn't um, that doesn't require that we no longer work on this. It could just be a, a better opportunity and a better environment to 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 grow this, or especially if it's if it's the right type of acquirer or the right type of partner that could um, supercharge the the product and expand its reach. So, um, for us, those thoughts are you know they're so far into the future that it's not even worth dreaming about uh all we all all we're doing is focusing on our our product and trying to um do whatever we can to better service our customers right and what other countries have you seen that you i mean i think before we started recording we were talking about you said something along the lines of the skills that you sort of gain in south africa or your experience here are not entirely applicable within the continent somewhere else. Yes, yeah, so the the product currently has the most function in uh, South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Uganda. Uganda is our primary market right now because that's where we've seen the most activity. But the the comment that I was making was about South Africa, and it's it's an incredibly valuable market given the the size of the population, the size of the economy, the development of the the economy. But at the same time. We're trying to be a solution that services, you know, the, that is global, that services the entire continent, um, has reach across the world, especially in emerging markets. And South Africa is probably closer to developed markets than emerging markets. And, and so my, my comment was that um, learnings that we might get from being live in South Africa will do very little to translate across the rest of the continent, um, whereas Uganda is probably more similar to the average um, you know, African country. Yes. That's very interesting, and that's a very, very good point, because I see a lot of entrepreneurs here, they talk about, well, when we do this here, it works in South Africa, we're just going to take it and we go to X country, talking about a different country here. <laughs> and Howard Stein, the, the CEO of um, the company we were talking about earlier, slide, he was talking about the same thing, like our South Africa is very, very different from other African countries. But anyway, lastly, when you're pivoting, because you guys have you know, went through, I don't know how many pivots, but you spoke of one here. Um, how It shows how you are not always married to your idea, because I think a lot of people get too passionate about what they initially thought, that they would ignore the data and you know, to pivot into something that makes more sense, and then they just want to keep it exactly what they thought. What, what are you, what's your approach to that kind of thinking when you're trying to change direction yeah you should be if you're an entrepreneur find the problem mm-hmm. don't find a solution don't find an idea right. the problem will inform your mission hopefully if you do it properly mm-hmm. and then the the problem will help you find ideas find potential solutions and then you'll build those and you try those but What's ultimately going to happen is your ideas are going to be wrong. The way that you build your product is going to be wrong. If, and if you, as long as you do the proper 
work up front in validating that there is a, a big enough problem that needs solving, then you'll still be able to survive and pivot along the way. Um, so from the start, make sure you find the, the why, the strong enough why um, that allows you to figure out you know, what you're building and how, what, what you need to build and how you need to build it. Because as long as you have the, a really strong why that guides you and that, that you stick to, then you won't have issues cycling through the different what's and how's to find the right combination that solve that why. Um, that, that should be the, the guiding star. And as long as you listen to your customers, that you accept that you gather data and you listen to data and you accept what the data is telling you, then you'll be able to move through the different um, pivots, the different you know, designs, different solutions that eventually help you find. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. This is amazing. How, how does one become a cockroach? Um, find something that you're passionate about. Passion is the best thing because if you're passionate about the problem, then it'll motivate you to fight through all the times where you feel like everything, everything is just kicking you down. So should you be passionate about entrepreneurship or a certain venture? Passion, neither. Be passionate about the problem that you're solving for the people that you're solving them for. Okay, but then if you're, if you're done with one startup, you're moving to another one, that's a different type of cockroach also. You can find a new, you can, you can find a new passion. Right. You can find a new problem that is worth being passionate about as well. Oh. So remember, when, I, when we started, I wasn't passionate about this. I didn't know about this problem. I built my passion over time, which enables me to become a cockroach in those times of need. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can build passion towards something as well. But again, make it, make it passionate about solving a problem. Don't make it passion about an idea or a solution like we just talked about. Right. Awesome. Uh, Samuel, this was amazing, man. Thanks so much. Thank you. Cool. Great cop. Hello once again, and that was the end of our conversation. And just before you go, just want to communicate a few things with you uh, quickly. If you have uh, enjoyed any of the podcast or this specific podcast episode, I would appreciate it if you share it with your friends and family through your social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., etc., as well as write me a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcast app. That would be fantastic. It helps me flourish and sustain this podcast as well. Now, we also on other platforms like SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher Radio, um, and all other major podcast platforms. So whichever way you're listening to it, I would appreciate it if you leave me a review. You can also subscribe to the Graph Podcast through my website, graybc.com, G-R-E-Y-J-A-B-E-S-I.com. There you also find some of the blogs that I'm writing sometimes, and you get notified as soon as the new episode has been published. Until next time, enjoy and be productive. <laughs>